The Birth Circle podcast features experts in all the nuanced areas of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum with the aim of helping women make the choices that will keep them safe, healthy, and empowered. We respect all birth choices and believe in supporting informed consent and evidence-based practices. Nothing said on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. You should always seek the advice of a competent professional for your care. Welcome to the Birth Circle podcast. This is Sarah with Birth Circle, and today I'm joined by Kristen. And Kristen's the founder of Birth Monopoly, and she's a leading voice in the global movement of it to advance human rights in childbirth. She teaches an online course called Know Your Rights: Legal and Human Rights in Childbirth, and it's one in, it's it's one of a kind in the world. It's such a cool, cool class. She hosts the Birth Aloud radio podcast, and she's making the film Mother May I, which is a documentary film on birth trauma and obstetric violence. So Kristen, thank you so much for joining me today. I have so many questions. I know. But first of all, how did you get into this whole crazy birth world thing? <laughs> okay, sure. I, um, I got pregnant and didn't know anything whatsoever about birth. And um, I just, you know, went to an OB like everyone does. And um, at some point, which I think you, we might bring up, um, or we, we might talk about this later in a little more detail, um, it occurred to me that it might be a good idea to like see what birth was without all of the confusing stuff of um, the options and the different procedures and, you know, all the different, you know, pain relief options. And I was like, well, what does like birth just look like? Like, I want to start at a baseline and then I can like add to that <laughs> as I decide what I want to do. Um, so I started watching, um, YouTube videos of people. I like, I searched for like the most pared down births and <laughs> That's <of> course, scary. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's cause you know, fun. I, all I was getting was like horror stories from my friends. And then if I watched anything on TV or, you know, anything produced, it was like kind of the same deal it was like these, you know, emergencies and everything looks so scary. And, mm -hmm. you know, the mom is always like frantic and screaming and in pain and is like, get this baby out of me. Yeah. And I was That's like, movies are all like too. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, I don't want to do that. Like, I'm either going to have a C-section, I'm just going to schedule it because I don't want to deal with that mess, or I'm going to figure out, you know, is it possible to have sort of a dignified birth that's not scary? So, um, yeah, so I started Googling, and so I found YouTube videos about birth, and then, like, it became very quickly apparent to me that it was like the home water births where there was literally no birth attendant that was like visible, you know, right. um, I'm sure, you know, they're probably there, but yeah. I don't know. Um, and where like someone was just like alone in a bathtub and <laughs> delivered their own baby, you know, like caught their own baby. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, wait a second. Like I've never seen anything like this. This is possible. Like I didn't know it could be this simple and this calm and easy and like no one's yelling at her. She seems like she's in charge <laughs> of what's happening, yeah. you know, like, 
geez, why is it so complicated? You know? Um, and then I started at that point making moves to like, okay, how do I get something a little more like that and less like everything I've seen my whole life? Um, and, um, I eventually switched practices, um, started seeing a CNM and that was really different. And, and this was, I was probably like six months along in my pregnancy at this point. Um, but I started seeing her and I was like, oh, okay. So this is way different. Like this care, this model is yeah, different, different model of care. Yeah. Um, and then I got to about 41 weeks and, um, she started saying I need to be induced and or we need to talk about induction, you know? And I was like, I don't, what, I don't understand why we're talking about induction. Like 42 weeks is full term. Like when I hit 42 weeks, we'll talk, that's when we'll have a discussion about what we're going to do the next day or that day, you know? Um, so we kind of like, we're going back and forth. And she just kept pushing me to like schedule, put an induction on the books. And I was like, I don't want to put an induction on the books. I fully intend on having this baby by 42 weeks. Why wouldn't I? Like 95% of people have their babies by 42 weeks or something like that. Um, and if I don't, then we'll talk. Yeah. Like, why is this not obvious to you? <laughs> like, so, um, I got right to the end of that, like I, like five days into that week or whatever. And, um, there was a little more back and forth and I was really starting to get like, she's freaking me out now. Like I, this is not making sense to me that she wants to have it on a calendar so bad. Like we'll put it on a calendar when we're ready to do it, you know? Um, and then that Saturday, which was 41 weeks and six days, um, she called me and was like, you have to come in tonight. I know we talked about tomorrow night and, you know, you were going to come in tomorrow night, but we don't have room for you tomorrow night. You need to come in tonight. And I was just like, really? I can't have 24 more hours. You know, like I'm terrified of this procedure. Like you've described what you're going to do. I don't want anything going up my vagina. I want things coming out of my vagina. <laughs> I don't want you putting things up there. You know, she wanted to do a, like a Foley bulb and, you know, Pitocin after that. And, um, I was just really upset and I got off the phone and, um, I started calling around and, um, I managed to find a different CNM at a different hospital who I just like happened to get a hold of on like a Saturday afternoon. And, um, she was like, come on in and, you know, let me, let me see what I can tell you. Like, I'd be willing to like, take a look. So, um, I went to her office immediately, got an exam, and she gave me like a totally different set of information. And um, and by that, I mean, I didn't have any information <laughs> prior to that. It was right. just, well, you're 41 weeks and six days, like you have to be induced. Um, so she was like, okay, here's what I see. Here's what's going on with your cervix. Um, here's what's going on with the, you know, what I can, like the other visible signs, you know, on your body. Um, and here are your options and, um, what do you, what would you like to do? Like you can do whatever you want. And I was like, what do you mean? I can do whatever I want. You know, <laughs> I didn't know I get to make decisions like this. I would like to make decisions, but no one's ever said to me, you're in charge. 
like absolutely whatever you want to do. Um, so it seems like really clear that, you know, up to that point, it had always been like, oh, of course, whatever you want to do within these limits. Yeah. There's always parameters. Yeah. 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 Like you can have any color you want as long as it's black. I think Ford. Yeah. Right? Or like or any have, color yeah, car you red, want as long as it's black. <laughs> red, white, and black. And you can have any of those colors. <laughs> as long as it's black. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, um, so I ended up switching to that midwife and, um, went in, like went into spontaneous labor, like almost immediately. Um, which I think, you know, I think the only reason I hadn't gone into labor was because I was feeling really anxious about this other midwife who like kept trying to get me to schedule this thing. Um, so I had my baby, everything was fine. It was like a perfectly like, smooth, uncomplicated birth that didn't really need anything. And, um, afterwards I was just like, my God, why was that so difficult? Like all I wanted was not stuff. (laughs) Like, why is it more complicated to, to like not have things done to you than it is to get things? Um, so I started researching, sorry, this is like such a long drawn out answer. I didn't mean to make it this long. Well, no, it feels like this is so many people's journey as they start this. I just wish we could shorten the learning curve a little bit. Why does it feel like everybody has the identical learning story when, (laughs) when this should be like normal, everybody should have the information. Well, we'll talk about that, I think, but I mean, yeah, we'll talk about stories. Um, So, yeah. So then after that, I was just sitting around with this baby postpartum and I started this thing. That was my first thought. (laughs) Well, yes, there was that. Um, and then like, I was, I was like, why, like, what, what were my rights in that situation? Like, what if I hadn't found that other midwife? Would I have just had to go in for that induction? Like, did I have any rights in that situation? Does she just get to decide how I give birth because I hired her? Cause that doesn't seem right. Right. So, um, so I was doing, I was kind of Googling and then I just like found all these birth stories online and I was like, OMG. what happened to me was definitely not unusual. Mm-hmm. And what is unusual is that I happened to find somebody else last minute and was able to switch and avoided an induction that I did not want to have and that nobody could tell me why it was necessary. Yeah. So, um, that was really, so that like kind of introduced me into it, but what really like got me obsessed was when I started hearing everybody else's stories and realizing how close I had come to being like another statistic of a possibly unnecessary um, induction. So um, I really was so shocked that one, I couldn't find any solid information on my rights. Um, when I eventually like figured out some things, which was hard to do, um, I was like, you're saying I had the rights the whole time? Like I had the right to decline the induction the whole time? How did I not know this? Right. No one has ever treated me as if these are my decisions. They've treated me like I'm a child and they're just trying to like coach me along, get me to comply to things. And I was just like, whoa, how do I not know that they have these rights? So 
that just was so shocking to me that people, A, that people don't know that, and B, that these rights are so egregiously, egregiously violated all the time, like routinely. So, so on your, your website, you have um, a pyramid that I would really love you to talk about. It's, it's fascinating. And it's oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, it's because, because how do you get to the point where, um, I guess the word you'd use is obstetric violence. How do you get to the point where there's forced procedures and there's, there's things yeah. that women don't want to happen? How do you get even to that point where that's even possible? Yeah. Well, I think it starts with these, like, this very normalized language of all that matters is a healthy baby. It starts with that because that removes the mother, the birthing person from the equation, which Mm -hmm. is super problematic. Um, And then stuff like, yeah, we can let you do that. Or let you do that. Yeah. You don't allow people to give birth in the water, but you can labor in the water. So those words like allow and let, I think are really powerful. <laughs> also um, the pathologi- pathologization. <laughs> that word is so hard to say. Yeah, I always try to that. say it because it's in my thing here. It's Isn't like that cute how I mess it up. So now you don't have to, but it's, Thank you. it's how do you, um, pregnancy and birth is a normal physiological, I can say that word process. How come we've made it an illness? And that, that's at the very bottom of this pyramid, too, is just simply turning this into an illness. Yeah. Yeah, like it's inherently, um, like it's more dangerous than safe. Yeah. Um, and I'm not one of those people who says birth is safe. I honestly, I personally do not believe that. Also, I don't think that has anything to do with whether or not our rights should be respected. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. I'm really shy about the like trust birth and like all that kind of language. Um, But it doesn't actually matter. Like, I don't think it should matter. Even if it's unsafe, we should still have our rights protected. We should still have informed. Right. Because, because what you're, what you're kind of implying there is because it's risky we don't trust you to have legal rights around it, which I think is a really problematic idea. I mean, it's akin to taking any group of people and saying, you know, we don't want you to hurt yourselves. So we're going to have to just take away these really big. Well, maybe, maybe you're a diabetic and that's a dangerous situation, but we don't trust you to eat the right food and give yourself the right amount of insulin. So we're going to go ahead and put in a feeding tube and a pump. Right. I don't know. I mean, yeah. Or I mean, you could look at it in terms of like literally legal personhood throughout history. Um, you know, for hundreds of years, groups of people have not been recognized as having full legal rights. And every time somebody tries to advance those rights, you have people basically saying, mm, it sounds like a nice idea, but these people can't handle those rights. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. They can't handle it. They need to be taken care of. They need to be protected. That's really They need to be told what to do. Oh, they need man. to be managed. It's a really um, train of thought. What? It's a really dangerous train of thought. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. So, I mean, to me, that's essentially what we're saying here is like, we're just inherently mistrustful of women and birthing people. 
And we're making the assumption that they will not make the, the decisions that are in their own best interest and in the best interest yeah. of their babies. So well, um, it doesn't help that it's an emotional situation and that you feel a little overwhelmed anyway with this whole, I mean, I would never want to do anything with, that would jeopardize my baby. So it puts me in a vulnerable position to be coerced. Um, just well, yeah. you, you want your baby to live, don't you? You don't want to kill your baby, do you? And that's that just messes all kinds of head games. Yeah. Well, it makes it easy for your baby to be used against you. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Used against me. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so, yeah, keep going. Well, the, well I was just going to say about the, about the pyramid is like, um, there are a couple things at the bottom of this pyramid that we've actually were chatting about before we started recording, um, birth horror stories, and jokes about the pain of birth and the loss of dignity and birth. Yeah. Um, jokes about birth plans leading to C-sections. I just posted something on Instagram last night of, you know, like a, a nursing meme making fun of birth plans. It was like, you know, Nancy Pelosi tearing up the... Yeah, know, the <laughs> I saw that speech. go around too. Yeah, and it was, you know... It, it was, you know, it was like nurses saying like, this is what I do to birth plans. You know, mm -hmm. I tear them up. And, um, I'm like, wow, you know, that, that, that we, that anybody, any professional thinks it's okay to post something like that publicly, um, says a whole lot, a whole lot about the culture in the Yeah. I um, can't think of a, I can't think of a comparison. I mean, I don't know any lawyer or dentist or doctor that would be seen as yeah. a professional for mocking their clients publicly. I, yeah. And I was, I was telling you, I was doing a bunch of like financial stuff this morning and I was thinking about like an accountant, for example, like an accountant saying, you know, ha ha, my client thinks they're going to like, you know, do their budget this year. What a joke. Like, so no. not only is it inappropriate, but you're, you're undermining their efforts. Like yeah, you're saying, exactly. I, I don't believe they can achieve this thing. And my gosh, as a customer, it's pretty clear to me that I'm going to get different service from you when you already believe I'm going to fail at the thing that I'm trying to exactly. accomplish. Um, and it's super, super dangerous because we're not just talking about like a monthly budget here. We're talking about major health outcomes, major mental health outcomes, bonding yep. attachment that can affect the the rest of your lives. And your grandbabies. Child I mean, relationship. Yeah. They say a good birth can fa change family trees. You stop things in its track. You completely shift. I mean, my, I, I've suffered with post um, postpartum mood disorder with uh -huh. several of my pregnancies, but not all of them, which which shows to me that it is preventable and treatable, that it's not something that you're just doomed to have. And, I, and a lot of it had to do with how I was treated in my births. Yeah, it's confusing to talk about because I think there are so many ways that there are different layers and there yeah. are different things that interact with each other. But you are correct. Like the research is, is really clear that especially if somebody's coming in with a trauma history, we know that that's like an elevated risk factor for birth trauma for PTSD yep. after birth. And, but then if you then pile on that traumatizing them unnecessarily during birth, 
then you've, you know, you've like multiplied their risk factor yeah. for postpartum issues. And people don't understand that it's, it's easier to trauma. Well, it's easier to traumatize a, a birthing woman because she is hormonally and um, chemically in a different place than a normal functioning human. And that serves a purpose. Her body is transforming right. into a mother. Her body is making these chemical changes to be able to feed a baby. And you mess with those those chemicals. Yeah. It's just, I mean, you think you would never, never, never pull a birthing cat out from underneath the bat, a uh, bed by her back legs. Right. And right, right. give birth on top of the bed. Everyone's like, shh, cat's giving birth. It's in the back under the bed. Shh, everybody knows. Right. I mean, you, you knew you'd get your eyeballs scratched out if you pulled that cat out and you, you'd probably hurt her. Like you, you yeah. know, you'd mess with her. Just why are we any different than a cat? Or a cow or a dog. I mean, yeah. any mammal, you, a birthing mammal, you have to leave her alone. <laughs> it's really simple. It's really simple physiology. Um, yeah. So in that, I, it's I, simple physiology, but it's not always safe. And you do have to be careful. That's what you're kind of saying. Right. But like, yes. And saying that it's not 100% safe is not an excuse for over-medicalizing it. and forcing things on people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we know that it doesn't equate to better health outcomes. And I think like, that's the thing that, um, continually blows my mind when I see like the justifications for certain assaults of like, well, we need to keep somebody healthy yeah. here. No, 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 no. Because like, you're, you're literally doing the riskier thing. Like that is yeah, the, the, assault that the evidence riskier. shows. Oh yeah, God. doesn't improve health outcomes, but does introduce this set of risks. So there's something else going on there. It's not, it's not about safety. It's not. No. What is it? What, why, why is there? So, so I guess at the root, it's a cultural problem with not seeing birthing people as um, a, a group of people that have the equal rights, what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, and who are the legal authority? Of over their own body, over their own body and their and their birth, and I think it's um, there's just a lot of misogyny in there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it just makes sense. Like we couldn't vote a hundred years ago. I mean, yeah. we couldn't like own property. Yeah. yeah, I mean, get credit cards. Marital rape, you know, was still legal in the '90s. You know, like of course we're not there yet with this. Right. I, it's not surprising. Patience. Well, the thing that surprises to me too is um, this isn't always um, a male OB with an ego problem. I have seen women hurt by certified nurse midwives and by doula yeah. and by their own mother. Like it's totally. not even just a, a female or, you know, male problem or a scene. It's, yeah. it's what the actual birth process is what's not respected. Yes. And also I would say the fact that all of those people that you just named don't automatically respect that birthing person as the legal authority. That's the misogyny right there. Because I guarantee you that those same people, if they think it's okay to violate the rights of another woman, they have their own issues. Yeah. About themselves, right? About their own boundaries. Um, Ouch. As, as somebody who works on issues of consent 
and writes all the time, I'm super conscious of how I treat other people. And that applies to me, right? So I know my rights, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But like I apply those same standards to other people. So, so what, mm-hmm. is, what would you, what would you actually define as obstetric violence? Uh, like what we're talking about this trauma and but but I want to bring it down to like break it up. What would you consider violence and and what how could a woman in her mind decide if what she experienced or is experience is considered violence to her? Um, so there isn't a single definition of obstetric violence. I think it's still kind of um, evolving, but a working definition for me is that it is normalized mistreatment of women and birthing people in the childbirth setting in an attempt to control their bodies and decisions. And it can mean physical force, but it also refers to disrespect, coercion, including emotional coercion, um, bullying, threats, and withdrawal of force. uh, I'm sorry, withdrawal of support as well as violations of the right to informed consent and refusal. Wow, that is a mouthful. I want to I know, right? Put that in text and put it on the blurb of the podcast. That's an amazing definition. The only thing I'm wondering about in that definition is why would this why would control be a factor? Why would the providers want control? Wow, well, I think there are a lot of reasons. Um One, there's a lack of education about the physiology of birth. And we have always, you know, the history of obstetrics in the United States, it comes from a place of total management. I mean, do you look how people gave birth 190, 80, 70 years ago? It was, it was super managed. It was like, you know, we brought in twilight sleep and it was literally, we knock the woman out and yeah. or restrain her. I had not heard about Twilight Sleep until a few years ago, and I have not actually, it's not come up in any podcast episode before. So just if you're listening, go Google Twilight Sleep. It's pretty incredible. But they basically believe that a woman shouldn't have to feel the pain, and they would knock her out in, with a drug that would, was, um, would wipe her memory, but not pain relief. So here's this woman, her body is experiencing pain and she is not conscious and and able to cope with the pain. And so they would then tie her to the bed or tie her up so that she wouldn't hurt herself. And so she'd wake up and they put a baby in her arms and she wouldn't remember anything, but her body had, had spent up to days thrashing in this apparatus that they had tied her to. I, yeah, and so what? people are coming out with like bruises and like different this injuries. Is only two generations ago, this is like uh-huh. giving birth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, this is like this is the history of obstetrics. Like, we completely managed birth, and like we're pulling babies out with high forceps deliveries, um, as as if the body was literally just like this inanimate object Mm -hmm. that contained a fetus (laughs) and it was up to this team of people to extract the fetus from the object the word choices are just great you're great well I mean that's what it was it was you know we're gonna we're gonna take the woman out of the equation you know we're gonna medicate her 
so that we don't have to deal with her. And then we stick these forceps inside her and pull the baby out by its head. And of course, what ended up happening was babies were coming out so floppy, they were drugged, they were injured by the forceps. Um, eventually, twilight sleep you know, started going out because of so many dead babies. Um, but there was never like this, there was never a reckoning. It was never like a, wow, we made a mistake. That was, that was a, yeah. Like let's reset, let's do Uh some research or let's look at the research we have and see what would be best. No, it's always just been this long, slow evolution into like, well, if we're not going to do it that way, I don't know. Like, well, we'll just not do this part and we'll just do all the rest of it. Oh, well, that didn't work. Okay, I guess we'll take out the, you know, we'll, we'll remove this from the equation now. So I don't think people realize like the roots of this thing, you know, yeah. like the reason we are where we are today is because modern obstetrics has evolved from this really brutal really misogynistic, um, you know, foundation. Yeah. Um, And there was never a time where there was like a pause hit and everybody said, how are we going to do this the right way? It's only been this like slow evolution. So, um, here we are trying to prove why people, why we shouldn't do certain things instead of, working from the assumption that like in any other area of like science and medicine, you have to prove why you would do an intervention versus why you would not do an intervention. And it feels like a lot of the interventions are, are just convenience for the hospital or the doctor, like birthing on your back. That's purely convenience because there, it it doesn't benefit the birthing woman at all. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's pretty clear that a lot of these things are not for the benefit of the birthing person, <laughs> you know, um, for the, I just, and, I, and I don't know that it's, I hate that we tie words to like birth rape and assault and, um, trauma to things that are merely happen for convenience. I mean, I built a house and the contractor cut corners for his convenience. And I didn't call that that violence or trauma. I called it <laughs> being cheap and un, you know unfair and, and dishonest but why why do we why do we feel like i guess it's kind of a convoluted question i just how come we use the word birth rape to describe this and not something else mm, that's a good question um well first of all i think it's important to remember that that is a term that was coined by survivors of it Mm. So this wasn't like somebody out there thinking, you know what that sounds like? It sort of sounds like rapey. So I'm going to like throw this label on this thing. Um, and the same can be said for the term obstetric violence. So these are terms who were coi- that were coined by people who actually survived the things and came out of them going, this felt to me like rape. This felt to me like violence. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important that we respect the origins of those terms. Um, I know that the term... Yeah, so if a survivor calls it birth rape, then the people who, you know, who gets to define, well, that wasn't really birth rape. Why are you calling it birth rape? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good discussion. And like, so first of all, I would say not everybody 
feels things the same way or defines things the same way. Right. So I've had, um, you know, a rape survivor say, I find that term super offensive, birth rape. They don't, it's not the same thing. Um, it's, it's demeaning to people who have survived so-called real rape. <laughs> and then I also have people who are rape survivors and call themselves birth rape survivors as well. It and they say, oh my God, it was the same exact thing. I had the same feelings. Um, it was the same part of my body. I had the same trauma happen. Um, it was two different contexts, but the effect on me was the same. Mm-hmm. And yes, it was absolutely rapey to me. So, so right off the bat, I would say not everybody has to use a term that they don't feel comfortable with. I mean, I think there are a lot of things in birth that, you know, what we call, for example, a C-section, we could call them cesareans, cesarean births, belly births. You know, everybody has a different term that they, that fits their experience. And I think mm-hmm. that's okay. And totally. I think and that you don't applies. Get all upset when people call their C-section a different thing or they call anything else a different thing. It's just the word birth rape just in, incites anger in so many people. And I just, well, can't. so I think there's another layer here, which is um, people are so offended that we characterize medical care as violent. Like ah, parent, like, it. how dare you? This is care. How dare you be so entitled as to label this, you know, a violation or, you know, whatever. You should just be grateful you have care. Actually, the reason I learned so much about sexual assault is because of this work. They, they it was so obvious to me <laughs> from the very beginning that there are so many parallels And there's so much overlap. Um, And there's so much overlap in the groups of people that, you know, if one in four women is an assault survivor and then one in three has birth trauma, like obviously there's overlap between these two groups. Like there is going to be some interplay between these two things. And we can't pretend like they are totally separate you know, one is not the same and one is, you know, totally different from the other. Um, and another really kind of interesting, so two more things to say about this. One is, um, I, I think the other thing that people find so offensive is that, um, you're implying that a care provider is a sexual predator, right? Yeah. That's the other, you're saying, Oh, so are you saying a doctor is a rapist then if you were birth raped and what I find so interesting mm-hmm. about that is that the question then is who defines what is rape? Does rape does have the perpetrator? Does the, the perpetrator yeah, define it or does the victim define it? Well, and is rape just sexual in nature, nature or is it just the act of putting something in, in a woman's vagina? Right. So this is right. It. And the law is not, is not always helpful with that. Because the way the law in different places defines rape um, leaves out quite a bit, you know? Um, However, the point that I really want to make is um, it is really unfair to survivors to say, because the person didn't have sexual intention, you're not allowed to experience it as rape. Yeah, that bothers me so much. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really big problem to totally erase that person's experience Mm -hmm. because we don't want to imply 
that the person doing the thing, um, that we're, we're basically afraid of the implications against the, the perpetrator or the, the care provider or whatever. Um, and I can totally see as a care provider, I would be horrified if someone said, you know, you doing that cervical check on me without my full consent was like a sexual assault for me. Like I would be so horrified if that were something that I was trained to do, totally thought was acceptable behavior and standard of care and had done it numerous times to hear that someone experienced that as a sexual assault or found that re-traumatizing for them as a survivor of sexual assault. Um, that would be a very difficult thing to hear. Yeah. Um, and I have compassion for that. And I also don't think that survivors need to change their terminology around it. I think care providers need to face up to the truth of what they are doing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the consequences of our actions are much bigger than anything we ever intended. You know, leaving a burnt, you know, a burning cigarette in the forest. Like we don't intend to burn down the forest, but when you do, we understand who's at fault there. You shouldn't have left the cigarette burning in the forest. Um, I think it's a lot more complicated than this. You know, I think um, there are a lot of ways that our system kind of sets providers up to be abusers. Um, We abuse providers themselves during their education or during their training. Oh my God. Um, they oh my aren't goodness. properly educated on informed well, consent. And, and any resident, like I, I, I would, I could never be a doctor that how they treat them yeah. as a resident and as a new, as a new. Yeah. OB, it's emotionally never. abusive. It's physically abusive. Yeah. Um, and then we literally train people to abuse patients. And I know that's a big statement, but I know it's true because I've heard it from the mouths of so many medical professionals, nurses and physicians. I was trained to do it this way. I was trained not to ask. I was trained to say, we're going to X now, rather than provide informed consent. I was trained to don't say anything before you do the cervical check. If she's like having a contraction, you know, go ahead and do it then, because then she can't, fight you basically. Right. I mean, um, and then I think there are just a lot of really much more subtle ways. I'm sure there are a lot of providers who would say, my God, I would never do that. You know, that sounds horrible and disrespectful. I would never do that. But 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 at the same time, they are the type of provider that would not allow for a VBAC or they would be um, doing procedures without asking. They don't see that line in their own mind. Yeah, I think, I think the coercion aspect comes in, um, where, and, and we had sort of mentioned this is like, you know, the term obstetric violence is difficult for a lot of people because they're like, well, no one forced me. I really, I I really feel like most um, providers are out to get anyone. I'm sure that there's a few bad eggs out there that really delight in hurting their patients (laughs) because there always is. Right. But I really don't think for the most part. They want to hurt their patients. So why are they yeah. using this coercion and control? It's yeah. So I know we've said this before, but I just, I feel like there's still nuance on there that this, ah. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of, um, 
it's part of the culture. Um, you know, anytime you talk to a group of people who have given birth, you'll hear people say, you know, they said, my baby was going to die. If we didn't do this, my baby was going to die. Or we need to keep your baby safe. You know, that was said to me about this induction, you yeah. know, that I declined. Well, we want to keep your baby safe. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a really powerful thing to put in a mother or birthing person's face. Is yeah. Our decision means your baby lives. Your decision means maybe your baby doesn't live. And um, well, I guess that's not going to be our fault. You know, it's all on you. It's a false choice. <sighs> um, and of course, I think what you and I know as being involved in this kind of work is that that is that risk is thrown out when it's really absolutely unreasonable and irrational to say, mm-hmm. for example, that your baby might die if you don't like have this IV. Like, I mean, it's just, no, there, there is not like a 50% chance of your baby dying because I'm a con. I built things and I love working with drywall, the fresh smell of fresh drywall. So I always like to bring the contractor example in because it's just a ridiculous comparison to birth. But if, for example, I say, I would like the master tub of my bathroom to be placed on that wall, the exterior wall instead of the interior wall. And my contractor says, well, you have the risk of freezing the pipes. And I'll say, yeah, that's, it's true. It's a risk. But I would like, I trust you to insulate correctly and keep me safe, keep my bathtub safe. The contractor would never say, well, I guess if the pipe freezes, it's your own damn fault. No, the the contractor would say, wow, it's really inconvenient for me to put the plumbing on the exterior wall, but this crazy lady really wants it. And I, you know, like, can we just do that with doctors? Can we just say, I would like a VBAC. And the doctor says, well, according to what I believe, that's not very safe. But, but, you know, and, and there is some risk, but I would like to support you. Like, I well, know. I mean, so, so the, oh, sorry, I'm like stuttering. Um, well, so the other big missing piece here is like objective information. Well, what does that mean it's safe? What oh, does that yes. mean it's not very the, the safe? The contractor is happy to explain to me the, the risk if of he, pipe freezing and if, he's if patiently he says, explaining that to me, whereas right. my doctor won't explain to me why a VBAC isn't safe. If your contractor says, listen, there's a 100% chance <laughs> of your pipes freezing this year. That's one thing, right? Yes, yes. If he says, mm, uh, you know, it's small, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a one well, in 20 chance. We could do these things to shore it up. Right. And it would even maybe lower a one in 20 chance. Yeah. And it depends on the weather. Okay? Which is completely out of the doctor, the contractor's control. Right. So if, the, if we get a hard winter, I'd say you have like a one in 10 chance of freezing. If we have a mild winter, eh, you, you know, maybe like but a one in use this certain faucet. I've heard that there's this new technology of this new faucet that does this magic thing and it won't freeze. So we could do that. It would cost a little bit more, but I'm happy to research that and get that faucet in from Indiana. So I can, you know, that's the kind of conversation I'm used to having with my contractor. And yeah. we, we build together. And at the end of the, at the end, not everybody has that experience with their contractor, but I found a good one. At the end of the day, I get a superior product because I have that back and forth and he is the, he is the um, professional and I have the vision and together we create this beautiful yeah. house. You get the thing that you want and need. And, and I see that in um, good prenatal care, or sorry, good care 
um, during birth is that the provider works with the client, the patient in the same way the contractor works with me. Very. I, I don't think that's a bad example at all. It, bring on the contractor stories. Sorry. I just, <laughs> I just, it makes no sense to me why we, we put birth in this bubble and we can't talk about it, you know, in a certain way. Yeah. But, Okay. Okay. So let's talk about obstetric violence just a little bit more. Um, that's another term that some people find offensive. And I like to remind people that that term is coined by survivors of obstetric violence. Um, for that reason, I think it's totally legitimate. If it feels like violence, like you get to call it what it is. And if that's offensive to someone, like they need to learn more about why you call it violence rather than rejecting out of hand the idea that it could ever be. Um, I also do think it's really important just to remember that violence doesn't have to be physical. And, you know, we've talked about coercion. Um, another way that obstetric violence happens that isn't physical really is just in a lack of options in saying yeah. we don't support VBAC, we don't support water birth, we don't provide intermittent auscultation. So you're going to have to be continuously monitored in, you know, in a way that's not going to be condu conducive to you moving around and, you know, whatever. Um, I think like that the removal of options that are totally evidence based and reasonable is a form of obstetric violence. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people don't, don't really get that. And I, you know, especially with VBAC, like that, it like kind of breaks my heart because um, so many people are so quick to say, breach is another scenario. They're so quick to just be like, well, my, well, my hospital doesn't offer that. So nah, I have to have the C-section. And like, I want to see people go, my hospital has a lot of nerve telling me that I have to have a C-section because they're not willing to offer another option. Um, they, the hospital needs to get it together and do what they need to do to make sure this option is available to me, which by the way, is what ACOG says. That is, those are the national guidelines. Oh, you don't speaking of national option. Yeah. Speaking, speaking of national guidelines, um, I read something recently that a ACOG has their guidelines that hospitals will take the interpretation however they'd like and say, well, we're, we're ACOG, we follow ACOG guidelines when they're so not. What are they saying when they're following ACOG, but they... I don't know. I don't know why hospitals would say they follow ACOG guidelines. Like, well, I, they I pick mean, and choose. They'll, they'll pick and choose. They'll pick the ones they like and then the ones that they don't like. like well, yeah, because there's... I mean, like, they don't have to. Like, there's no, like, regulatory body that's, like, watching hospitals. And, and going, that's oh, key right here. That's key. Policy calling... is different than legality. That what is? Sorry? Policy is different than legality. Yeah. So a hospital telling you you can't do something has nothing to do with, with what's legal. It just has to do with their Oh, policy. right. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's really huge. Um. And, and oh, so that's another that's another form of obstetric violence. Like, well, our policy is you have to you're not allowed to um, using policy in that way. Not like not our policy is, but of course you have the right to. We recommend, and our policy is, but 
you can refuse that. Yeah. Now that's appropriate, but the way policy is often communicated to people is it comes across as though it has like the weight of the law behind it mm-hmm. of like, well, if you come into our facility, you must abide by these policies. You are like bound to these policies. Um, and that is a real problem because, I, you know, from my experience, I've just, it's, it's really clear to me, people really think that they are legally obligated to comply with hospital policy. And, it, and the, they've somehow made a contract by going in and starting the process, the birthing process with that hospital. Yeah. But I've heard stories of women just checking themselves out, just saying, well, no, this isn't, this isn't, I don't like this. And signing this form, which what's, what's the legality of signing the AMA against medical advice form to check yourself out of hospital. It's there isn't right, any. right? You just no legal recourse. You just sign it and say, you know, they, and it usually is like, well, you know, we've explained the risks of, and the patient chooses to. You're probably, and, your baby's probably going to die if you leave the hospital right now, but sign this form anyway. <laughs> but there's no legal recourse. Well, You're not signing a contract. They couldn't hold you prisoner for not signing that form. It's right. not like you're not allowed to leave unless you sign some form, but it does, I think, give you a little bit of leverage as a consumer because it makes them feel better, makes them feel a little more safe about the exchange. If you say, you know what, this isn't working, um, I'd, like, I'd like to sign a release of, you know, and against medical advice, that I'm leaving against medical advice. And then they'll be like, well, she does have the right to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, I mean even as I dance to the beat of my own drum all the time, I am I am a very independent thinker, and I love doing things my way. But even the thought of signing out of a hospital during labor because I'm not being treated well that it gives me little flutters. Like that's a big deal, and yeah, that's, that's really difficult. And then you and then you have to make like logistics decisions. Where are you going? <laughs> How are you getting there? You know, do you have a partner who's right there? Who's like immediately a supportive and isn't going, honey, honey, just honey. It's fine. Honey, just do it. Oh my gosh. Um, That would be impossible then. You know, you know, this, like this whole advocacy conversation that I think is really important. And like, this is a conversation that really needs to be had because traditionally we have said only the birthing person can like verbally make decisions, can, can verbalize, you know, and has the responsibility to verbalize what their decisions are in the room. That excludes the partner and the doula from participating in those conversations. I've had that experience of um, a medical professional trying to talk to me through during a contraction. And what I remember is in my head being a hundred percent aware of everything that was going on around me and unable to verbalize yes, anything yes. and going, Oh, I'm so irritated that they are bothering me with this at this moment. I have to like switch off some mental resources from what I'm doing and <laughs> allocate them to the communication part. New allocation. Yeah. But and I remember I'm going glad that they're asking only the pregnant or only the birthing person. I'm glad they they are because yeah, yeah. That's a can of worms if you're gonna listen to the doula. So I get why they do it. So it's important, but it's different when you're yeah. 
abusing the power of it, yes. by like inter- interrupting people doing, during labor and choosing not to listen to that person's support people who know what their decision, what the birthing person's decisions are. So yeah. if you've made a birth plan, your doula knows your birth plan, your partner knows your birth plan, yes. and you go in and they are saying, well, sorry, we can't listen to anybody but her. That's BS. Yeah. They're choosing to ignore the birth plan and acting as if they're doing it because you have to be the one making the decisions. You already made the decisions. They're in the birth plan. It's, it's, so it's ridiculous <laughs> to ignore that yeah. and pretend like, actually, we're doing this because we respect the birthing person. No, you're not. Because they already wrote down these decisions. And yeah. the doula and the support person are there to help make that clear. Oh, wait, there is a birth plan. I remember she said she wanted X. Here it is on her birth plan. And, yeah. and at that point, it would be appropriate of the provider to go, oh, I see. Okay, thank you. Okay, well, how about we'll wait for this contraction to finish and then I'll confirm that with her. Yeah, Hello, exactly. like, Hello. okay. Hello. <laughs> it's not that, Hello. it's not like, um, it's just, it's unreasonable to act as if, you know, I, I like these situations are so complex, like no one can figure them out. I know. They're not really, okay? Also, um, the, oh, what was I going to say about the, oh, well, so there, so there is this discussion. There is this discussion about when a birthing person is literally unable to verbalize. So that is true. That happens. I have experienced oh, I've, that I've experienced it. Many people who have said, like, I, I knew what I wanted to say. I knew what was going on. I couldn't get my brain to make the words come out of my mouth. Yep. Yep. No, I've experienced so, that fully and being completely conscious and aware, but just the, the, the part of the brain that did the verbalization was completely turned off. Yeah. So if we're going to say that all decisions must be verbalized by the birthing person, and also know that there are times the birthing person cannot verbalize decisions. Those two things are mutually exclusive. You cannot say those two things together. Yeah. And don't rip up the birth plans. <laughs> and then, and then like blame it on the birthing person. Like, well, she didn't speak up for herself or, well, you know, I, she didn't make the decision. Um, I, I have a real problem with that. Yeah. Um, I think it's a really important discussion that people need to, people really need to be having. And yeah. I think that, um, I know that it's difficult because then it means, uh oh, you're saying that in my role as a doula or a support person, my role might be slightly different than mm-hmm. what I thought it was going to be. And that's something we have to talk about. Yep. And, and then a whole nother episode would be how to um, have those support people have the skills and the right words to be able to, um, to advocate. advocate. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry. Struggling with words. Speaking of words, having words. Yeah. To advocate for the, the person who is birthing and to be a protector of that space. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, Kristen, thank you so much. I know I get to record again with you, so I'm very, very excited. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about your documentary film. So um, thank you so much. And where can they find uh, your website and listen to your podcast and all of the good things Birth Monopoly? And get on your your cute little, sorry, it's not cute. It's very professionally done newsletter, but it's really great. She 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 talks to you like you're her friend. Like her newsletters are just really interesting to read. Oh, thank you. <laughs> 
So I appreciate how that. Get on your list and, and all the things Birth Monopoly. Um, they can go to birthmonopoly.com. All of that stuff is there. Right at the top of the homepage, you can sign up to get on my email list. And you'll also get a free download of my one-page quick guide to informed consent and refusal. Ooh, um, which nice. is actually right here. <laughs> informed consent. Yeah, we didn't even you talk probably can't read it from there. But. Yes, it's in court. Awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so everybody, everything's right there. You should be able to, anything you want to find, you can see in the menu, my podcast, the film, I know your rights course, Perfect. Um, my articles with information about legal rights and birth trauma and all kinds of stuff. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was delightful. Please visit us at birthcircle.com, join our Facebook groups, or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience. And thank you to LaunchPod Media, who produces these podcasts.